Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. I'm really excited to talk to Jawad Mian. Jawad and I have known each other for a long time. And he's very inspirational in how he thinks about the world. And what I want you to get out of this, this is not a macro interview about what to think. It's a process of how to think and how to live your life and to get the things aligned that make a difference to you. And you'll get most out of yourself by doing so. So it's a philosophical journey through macro, and I really hope you enjoy it. Join me, Raoul Pell, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro, crypto, and exponential age landscapes. In The Journeyman, I talk to the smartest people in the world so we can all become smarter together. Jawad, good to see you back on Real Vision, finally. Likewise, Raoul. It's been some, it's been some time. It has been some time. Look, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because... You're just a fascinating person to talk to. You have a very different way of looking at things. And I think people will really appreciate how you think, not necessarily what you think, as I think you and I both agree. It's how people think that's a fascinating thing. But before we kick off, you've got a great story. So give us your story. So I'm from Pakistan, born and raised in Dubai. Um, and then I went to university in Canada. And that's where I began my career. Um, unlike most, uh, or some people in the industry, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I didn't train at an investment bank. And I worked for a hedge fund. I started my career as a bank teller. But that was one of the best things that happened to me because in that role, you're forced to interact with anybody and everybody. And I was a very shy kid growing up, and that sort of helped me break out of my shell. And you learn pretty well, you know, in a quiet neighborhood branch what a bank does, you know, so research, asset management, private equity, investment banking. And I kind of like the idea of asset management where you're reading a lot learning, understanding the world, but also can get feedback on your decision-making. So I did my CFA, did my CMT, tried to maneuver my way into markets. I was a fund accountant for a couple of years. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're a bank teller in a small branch in, what, Canada? Yeah. How do you, that's not a normal path to then think, oh, I'm going to do my CFA and I'm going to get into their investment banking operations. What mindset did you have that you thought, you know what, I can do this? Talk me through that because it's fascinating. I used to just pick up the phone and call people in the CIBC directory, right? I could see <laughs> who was a portfolio manager, who was an investment banker. So I spoke to all of them. And there's this one person who met with me for coffee and she told me, this is the sort of the path that you need to move forward. So I just signed up for the CFA exam and uh, read all the right books, right? The Market Wizards, the Classics, the Money Game. 
um, the Sonoris Collection and realized very quickly that I'm fascinated by the Kovner story, the Paul Tudor Jones and Druckenmiller story. So I started thinking about the world in more macro terms. I enjoyed that much more than bottom-up company analysis. And so I didn't want to do equity research, which was at that time very much sector-specific. I wanted to be much more broad in my thinking and understanding of the world. So that was kind of what took me on that path of just learning. Um, but it wasn't really until I you know, joined as a fund accountant at CIBC Mellon, where I finally met the Bloomberg terminal. And I fell in love with that machine, right? Um, just like, what is this? So I used to like, you know, while other people would be listening to music doing their work, I used to listen to Bloomberg radio. I'd stay, you know, for hours after work, just playing with the terminal, um, sitting for my CFA exams. That kind of got me through. Um, I think the ethic, the work ethic and the discipline was really something that I took from my father, who was very hardworking and driven. So it, it was certainly something that I felt was innate to me, just to like try to succeed. And once I've set my mind on something, to try my best to go out and achieve it. And so what was it like when you started to then, what, what was that first job? So macro was, you decided, okay, this is how you think. It fits with your the rhythm of your mind and how it works. Talk me through the first job and what you were doing and what you learn in that process because, you know, there's a reality of, you know, there's an expectations of reading the alchemy of finance and there's a reality. How, how did the rubber hit the road at that point? The first buy side role was actually in Dubai in 07. Um, that's when I joined as like a research analyst and moved to be like an assistant PM. And, and, and that, at that firm, they were doing a bunch of different things. They're running a global hedge, global fund of hedge funds. They had a global equity fund. Um, they had a Middle Eastern equity fund as well. So I was involved in all of those products. Trying to get a better sense of how to think about markets. Um, There's also the time when, again, 07, right? So booming economy in the Middle East is like a bubble in real estate. Yeah, really Bodies are really ripping, ripping higher. And so I started writing also at that time a blog just to make sense of what's going on because what I realized moving to Dubai from Toronto I could see the cascading sort of signs of an imminent crisis and yet here we were like raising a luxury real estate fund and you know being max equity and so I started writing a blog about why I think you know Dubai equities and real estate are overvalued and that sort of helped me understand better in my, my thinking my writing process uh, we had the products on one side, but then I was also writing to make sense of the world and sharing it publicly and got feedback from that as well. Um, and that was really a fun experience for me of just being involved and in seeing the crisis unfold, be on the right side of it in my writings personally, but then being unable to do much about it within the firm because I was this junior kid trying to um, speak to partners who were twice his age and why would they listen to me? So I kind of realized that it's difficult, this working for other people, um, the conflict, the compromises one needs to make. And so my dad was an entrepreneur. So being there very early made me realize that I actually want to do my own thing as well. And at some point, I felt like a naive Jawad. The idea was, I'll, I, you know, I used to joke with John Burbank, I want to pull a Burbank, you know, like basically raise a million dollars and set up my own fund. The same way I and and, you know, Tudor and Druckerminer did it. That was sort of the idea at the back of my mind. So I used to go to these jobs and um, run money. At the end of the day, I wanted to do my own thing. And so what did you do? I told myself that whenever I have three years of savings, I'll quit and, and do my own thing. 
I reached that point in 2012. And that gave us a like, three-year cushion because I read somewhere that Sandra Miller, it took him three years to make more money than a secretary. And then at the same time, Mark Twain said that you should write for three years. And if after three years, you're not making any money, sawing wood is what you're intended for. <laughs> and so like, you know, let me just give myself a three-year cushion. It seemed like the best decision because, you know, three years later, I'd still be, you know, 31 and I have a CFA, I can go get out of the job. But at that time, I wanted to quit before getting married, before having kids or any liabilities. So I had tremendous flexibility. So I quit in 2012. And the idea was to, again, raise a million, million dollars and launch a fund. I raised a million and a half. But then I realized actually through that process, my heart wasn't into it. Something was changing within me and it just did not make sense. I could not articulate best at that time what it was, but I pulled the plug. And I started writing and reading at, at that time to just really explore. Because I realized I'm just this kid sitting in Dubai. Do I even know what's going on in the world? Um, do I even have a process? Let me sort of put that down on paper and see where things go. Let's connect with people from around the world, get their feedback. And so that was, you know, late 2012, I quit. 2013 was the fundraising journey and realized, actually, I don't want to go ahead with the fund. And 2014 is when I started Shareflection and I started writing um, and flipped it into a business. You approached it in a very interesting manner. You know, both you and I have been in the, around this industry for a while and we know a lot of the same people. How you write is very different. How did you approach it? What did you think when you wanted to come into the business of writing and thinking, because I think you approach it like I do, is like it is a beautiful thing to be paid to think. Um, how did you approach it? What did you think? Okay, what can I do? Because you you kind of burnt out of the industry as well. I think that was the the understanding that you'd had when you were raising the money. It's like I don't want to do this anymore. So talk me through that, and then how stray reflections came to be in in what it is. What I started doing this, I realized I'm not unique in what I do because there are a lot of people out there with opinions about the markets, right? But I am unique in who I am, just like you're unique in who you are. And so I made it a personal pact almost right from the heart, from, the, from a very personal space. And I was also very hesitant to really turn it into a business because I wasn't sure if I'd have something valuable to say on a consistent basis. And then I read something where Rumi would said that words are just a pretext. It's the inner bond that draws one person to another, not words. And that kind of really gave me the encouragement to just be open and transparent and let it all out. So I made it a point at the end of every issue, I'd share some personal reflection, whether it was the birth of my daughter, the death of my grandmother, you know, visiting a friend, you know, a reflection from a book. And I kept that up consistently from the very beginning. And I think that also informed, you know, this idea that the more clarity we have in life, the more clarity we find in markets or in anything for that matter. So, you know, I really steeped myself in the traditions and the wisdom of the ancient sages, poets, philosophers, and learning from the East and the West and infusing that through, you know, what's happening in the world and markets generally. So I found that fascinating just to be able to, you know, read, reflect, and approach the present with that understanding. Because there's nothing really inspiring, frankly, about waking up and looking at Bloomberg News. But like waking up every morning, you know, feeling inspired to just, you know, be better, you know, help others be better and um, approach your work 
as a devotion, as a duty, not as a job or a career. I think that was a huge uh, difference in the way I started thinking about this because it really was something that I loved doing. Um, I was fascinated about markets, but I just wanted to approach it a bit differently. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Partly it's that life is a journey and it's the journey that you create and some of it you don't create. And that's how I've always liked about, well, that's how I've liked to approach all of this stuff. So it's not a job. It, as you say, it's a devotion. It's a journey. It's the journey of life itself. And it's just one of the aspects of it. And the, your personal life and your work life interweave, but they're not separated. They can't be separated. Um, which is why, you know, your reflections weirdly fit into a macro, you know, research service. Uh, I also loved how, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of that, um, the kind of Islamic philosophy from, you know, kind of Samarkand and that kind of golden age. Um, and you wove a lot of that in, you know, you, a lot of the speak, uh, the teachings of the Sufis and others, you weave it in, which is the, Wisdom that maybe other people don't aren't aware of and bring it together. I think it's a fascinating concept. Why did you think about doing that as well? Because then Stray Reflections, the book, is basically this part of it. Yeah, I mean, the book is actually a collection of all those personal reflections over the years, right? So the book wasn't written in one go. It was basically me collating all of those end notes from each of the issues. Um, and I think, you know, the... The wisdom you're referring to is, I think, part and parcel of every wisdom. Like for me, the most inspiring author um, was Ralph Waldo Emerson. And you learned that he was fascinated by the Bhagavad Gita, but he also had a fascination for Hafiz. You know, I'm from the subcontinent and Alama Iqbal is a famous poet. He was in love with Goethe. So all these, you know, wise people from the past, you know, East and West loved each other, found wisdom in each other's traditions. And I feel like there's nothing new in this world. Like everything that is relevant, that matters, that is important has already been said. And we just need to uncover all of that wisdom and bring it to the present. And so I just find myself really deeply interested in that. And again, if you look at The Money Game written by Adam Smith, you know, in actuality, George Goodwin, he talks about the fact that the first rule of investing is to know yourself, right? And if you don't know yourself, the market's an expensive place to find out. So... So all of these teachings, these learnings are really just a path to this knowing oneself, right? Successful investing is only possible with knowledge of oneself. And that's kind of the journey, I guess, that I was on. It's just, you know, getting to know myself. So then how did, or how do you approach markets? So you've got this broader gaining of understanding of yourself and your journey has been that in itself anyway, and you, what your writings help other people in their journey. But then how, how do you look at markets? What's, what's your methodology? And I know these things change over time and they adapt, but how do you think about 
analyzing markets, the macro, the big, beautiful 3D, ever-changing puzzle. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's evolved a lot as the business has sort of taken different iterations and grown over the years. And um, the way I approach it is this. I feel like my job is not to predict the future. It's to see the present clearly. And I do that by having lots of conversations with lots of interesting people within the community, both East and West in different seats, whether they're CIOs of a pension fund or, or hedge fund of various strategies or normally, you know, equity credit manager. So by speaking to a lot of people, I get a sense of what's going on, um, what they're concerned by. And that kind of helps me figure out the research discovery flywheel, just getting that community input of what I need to pay attention to. That's number one. I think number two is my habit and my routine. I mean, I've always wanted to work from home and I was inspired by Arthur Thompson who always said, beware of looking for goals, look for a way of life and find a living, find a way to make a living within that way of life. So for me, Stray Affections was really me wanting to work from home and then try to think, find a way to make a living. Yeah, I did the same with GMI. It's like, can I live in Spain? How do I solve for living on the coast of Spain still being in it? It was the same. It's the same thing, right? So how do I create a particular habit and a routine which allows me the freedom to think and reflect? So I'm very particular about my schedule and my routine. Um, and I'm not bombarded with a lot of emails or calls or meetings. I don't have a team that I'm responsible for. So unlike most or practically every client that we have, I've got a very free calendar. And I've trained myself to understand that I can't know everything. I don't need to know everything. And the areas where I have knowledge gaps, I'm very comfortable trusting people that I am very fond of and I've gotten to know very personally, right? So if it's crypto, I don't need to get deep down into crypto. There are a few people that I trust, you know, that I can speak with and I'll have a very informed opinion. Same thing with China or biotech or others. I'll do my deep dive and, and, and write about a topic when I have a unique angle, I feel but generally a very comfortable leaning into the community and, and this idea of all of us are smarter than any of us. So I feel that also helps having this freedom to not be reactionary. Like we like to think about this industry as being one that is filled with visionaries that could predict the future. I feel like we're actually more reactionary. And I think my focus is to be reflective and think about the second and third order effects of what's going on. And so I'm a, I'm a, I've got a slower pace of life at a slower pace of writing and a slower way to get things done. But I feel for our time horizon, which is generally six to 18 months, very directional in my orientation, it helps us get it right. And so I also, my, my relationship with information has changed. In the past, I used to want to consume everything, be on top of everything. And now I would say my relationship with information is more so on an as needed basis. So I know exactly what I'm going to do every single day that I wake up, what I'm going to be focused on researching or writing and everything else doesn't matter to me. If there's anything important beyond that particular topic or subject, I trust that it'll come to me either through my inbox or it'll come to me through our Slack community or through some other message that I receive from the clients. So anything that's important um, that I'm not paying attention to will come to me. I want to just focus on what I need to focus on for a particular view idea and just go deep down in that. Um, yeah, I guess this, those are some of the ways, you know, um, I struggle to answer the question for most people when they ask, like, what's your process? Because there isn't really, I don't have a model 
I don't have a uh, Macrobond. I don't have a, I don't have a Bloomberg terminal. You know, initially I couldn't afford it. <laughs> and then I realized I can live without it. And I kind of like living without it. So I actually have no tools or subscriptions or models. It's just, I look at what I do more as a creative thinker. And it's developing the creative habit. And I look at writing as a craft and one of pursuing the truth. And through that process, you every now and then come to some interesting, you know, discoveries. So my job really is to challenge beliefs that our community may have or people may have to expand their knowledge and to just help them think about the world differently, you know? Um, yeah, that's how I approach it. Really, if I think about it, I get one or two profound ideas a year. If I'm lucky, um, and I love it when that happens. It's the the magic happens, right? The mist clears, and you you uncover a new truth, and whatever that means. Um, I always love that. The information overload thing is is really complex to deal with because you need to. I always need seeds. Now you do it by speaking your community. What I try and do is see the mass of humanity <clears throat> and then try and think, what is the meta-narrative? Not what is obvious. Not why are they screaming and look at them screaming and shouting about something, but why are they? And what does that mean? And what, you know, to go to those second and third order effects and kind of stand back and watch the crowd screaming and shouting and baying and trading and doing all of these things and then try and figure out, something and usually there's something really big in that i never forget i was i got involved in climate change twitter uh climate change denial twitter ended up in an argument with these whole bunch of people and i stopped because there's no point i'm not going to change their minds so what i want to do is understand why so i kind of sidled off a couple of people and started asking them questions like, who are you? Where are you from? You know, how do you think of Pascal's dilemma? Why would that not matter to you that, you know, the, the, the downside of being so wrong is catastrophic and the, the worst case would be you end up with a cleaner environment. You know, where, where's the downside? And then it came out from these people that what they were worried about was the taxes going up or being able to refuel their car. And it was a reflection of the crushing of the middle classes and the working classes and their disposable income and the fact that real wages hadn't risen that got me down a whole bigger journey of of thinking that through so yeah i love i love that journey that serendipity of finding something that leads to another for me it's also more internal than external what i mean by that is again i think this comes to the design of life right whereby you know the most common wisdom that you'll hear is know yourself but I think it's missing the next sentence, which should be like, which version? Because we all have like different masks and different versions of, that, of ourselves running around. And I think one promise I made to myself was that I only want to be one Jawad. The same Jawad that's sitting with you right now, the same person that's going to be with his children later or, uh, you know, with friends and, and family otherwise. And the only way to do that, I felt, was when you're always operating from a place where your heart, mind, and tongue are aligned. And if you think about any conflict, whether it's with your spouse or a friend or with a stranger even, it's because your heart's saying something else, your mind's saying something else, and your, your tongue is speaking words that you don't really honor fully. And so I made it a point that I always want to be just one person. And the only way to do that is to be, have your heart, mind, tongue aligned. And the best way to 
keep that in check is to just stop lying. You know, not that I was a compulsive liar, but it's a nice rule to have for yourself. But what do you mean um, by li- what do you mean by lying? Because you, I mean, that's a big statement, but you mean something behind it. I mean, lying basically. to who? Yourself or lying to others? Anybody and yourself, beginning with yourself, right? So um, something something as simple as you know, like if you, your child comes to you and says, "Do you have chocolate? And uh, can I have chocolate?" And instinctively, we'll say, "You know, we don't have any." which is a lie because he knows you know there is something, right? And instead, just engage for a longer conversation. That's like why you shouldn't have chocolate right now. And so don't lie there. It's come to the point where if my wife asked me the time and if it's 8.17, I used to say it's 8.20. Now I say it's 8.17. Because even saying 8.20 is a lie. Or if I met somebody in London and, and I told them that I'm going to connect them with somebody and I don't do it or I forget, that's also a lie because they hold my word for what I said it was, right? But the point is, when you start living from that place of centeredness, when you read, you can pick up the difference between fact and opinion. When you can speak to some people, you can figure out when they're sort of misaligned. So I guess the news that comes to me, um, I can pick up much more easily, whether it's true or false, or there's a, a narrative here that doesn't really make sense. And it also applies to myself. So for example, if I'm having a conversation with a client and I'm talking about how I'm seeing the world, and if I get some pushback and I see myself behaving in a way internally where it's sort of misaligned, I'm like, okay, Joab, you got to go back and do more work. So it's for me, it's the process is also much more internal where when I read something, I can pick up on this is bullshit or this makes sense or the other, this is too sensational. Like they're just making a lot of these statements that are just not true. So this idea of, I think what Byron Katie has this process of the work, right? Where you, you ask the question, is it true? So you read a Bloomberg article. And you can ask that question multiple times through that article. Like, is it true? They're, they're saying this, but is it really true? Do you really know for sure it's true? So having that sort of accountability to yourselves, to what you read, to how you speak, helps me understand that, you know what, um, maybe I'm not in my best right now and I need to do more work before I speak or write something. I think lying to oneself is one of the biggest sources of conflicts and stress. Lying to yourself about your capabilities, lying to yourself about a narrative that you've built that you can't let go of. And I find markets are very full of people lying to themselves. A narrative that they once thought to be true, which may not be true, they keep hold of. And as opposed to just reflecting on, okay, that, that, that's changed. Right? People dig in. It's, it's, it's fascinating to observe. And I, you know, that's a, one of these observations I have about people. Who's digging in and why are they digging in? And a lot of it's because people have lied to themselves. It's when your expectations don't meet the realities. And that's a hard thing. And that's kind of why also I feel like I don't care to be consensus or contrarian. I don't find the value in being contrarian. I feel like I want to be independent and whatever. I can, so I can have some views that are consensus and some views that are contrarian at the same time. So arrive them as long as I arrive at them independently and, and well thought through. So I fundamentally believe in being agnostic, not ideological, um, and empirical, not dogmatic. I think that's fundamental to who I am and how I approach things. I don't have a particular agenda. And um, I just want to, you know, try to get closer to the truth, right? Like there's your version of the truth, then there's my version of the truth, and then there's the divine view or the market view. So how can you get closer and closer to that, right? Because all the prophets, they all had the same lament prayer. Oh, God, show us things as they are. And the only way to do that is to like let go of your biases, right? 
And so that's what I want to do. And that's where I guess the, the idea of knowing oneself, um, the spatial wisdom that we seek, you know, all comes down to that. And I think that's helpful in market. And I also think ultimately my job or my, my duty to the community is something, again, that um, the writer, Anne Lamott, you know, she was asked, like, what's the goal of a writer? And she said, to help others have this sense of wonder, of seeing things anew, things that can catch us off guard, that break in on our small bordered worlds. That's kind of how I see it. That's, that's my job, right? So I take it as a craft. Um, and I take it very seriously. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much the same. I'm, I'm very cognizant of that. And you touched upon another point that I think is really important and most people fail to do this, which like you, I don't believe in being contrarian or a consensus. They, they're not terms that mean anything to me. So I don't read anybody's research. Just don't. I just refuse because I don't want my thought process polluted by others. If people are paying me to think, the beauty of that is I can do this independently. They're paying me to to explain how I see the world, and it doesn't have to agree with them. Many, many of the um, global macro investor subscribers over the years have said, "I don't agree with you most of the time," but I'm fascinated in how you got to that opinion and what does that mean for my own framework. Do you read research? I don't get access to anything. <laughs> I don't get access to any Wall Street research. Um, not that I'm seeking it either, frankly. Um, but uh, but yeah, so again, it's this idea of like information on an as-needed basis, right? So I'm an inbox zero person, um, get very limited emails. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm subscribed to, you know, Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and um, Bloomberg News, I should say, and FT and, and some of these journals, uh, the papers, but not really any research per se. Um, you get to hear what their views are generally just through the, the news reporting, right? Like what? sort of consensus thinking is around different things. But yeah, I don't get access to research um, or read research as part of my process either. Now, you were, before we came on, we, we were talking about a, a mutual friend who was talking about quiet markets and narratives. I thought that was a very interesting observation. Again, it's just because what I'm, you know, enjoying talking to you about is, is how people can think because Again, it's not what to think that's the most important thing. It's how to think. And everyone will develop their own style. But what was the conversation you were having? Don't mention who it was, but just talk about what what, um, what that was. Yeah, I mean, he was just saying, you know, don't force it, Jawad. Let it come to you. And that's part of, I feel, the luxury of what I do, which is that, you know, in 10 years of this business, I can't think of a time when, so I got an email from someone saying, hey, Jawad, where's the obligation? You know, um, it allows me to really, truly be reflective. And if I don't know, I don't know. Um, and if things aren't clear, I'll happily admit they're not clear. The benefit is I can lean on the community and admit that and allow them to give me ideas. And I think that's something that I'm tremendously grateful for, is to be having that back and forth. I make it a point to speak to as many of our clients as possible. Um, on a weekly basis. And so that really, you know, and I travel a lot, uh, hosting dinners and breakfasts and, and events, to, you know, to bring people together. And it's, you know, ShareFlections has really morphed as much into an investment community and a learning community. And so just knowing that, you know, it's okay, Jawad, uh, take it easy and let it come to you. 
Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners and then we'll be right back. I've noticed you have gone through maybe a similar macro journey to me, going from the typical macro way, which is everything being negative, and you've actually become an optimist. I wouldn't say I was ever macro negative. Um, um, I feel like I've had, I've been bullish bears over the years. Um, yeah, I'm not talking about the bullish bears. I'm talking about the mindset. I don't think I would have been, in, I mean, I can't, I mean, I, I'm thinking back to when I started writing was 2014. Um, I don't think I've had that mindset either of being negative. Again, it comes out to that, you know, I want to know the truth. And so even for the very beginning, I've had this, this notion of being independent and I'm okay to be consensus or contrarian, um, agnostic, don't care to be ideological, um, whether it's. Trump president, whether it's G for life, whether it's, you know, climate change or anything of that sort. Like for me, it's like, what's actionable? What's the investment implication? I don't get into the debates of what's right or wrong. You know, who, who knows? So I don't feel like, um, the business has taken different iterations. And I think we've, we've both been, um, the beginning of our journey has been similar in that Steve Jopney was hugely in, in, influential. He's, he still has been in my life. So I think our, our macro business journeys have perhaps evolved together. Thinking-wise, I'm not sure. No, I mean, well, I've, I've definitely changed how I look at the world um, because I actually found my time horizons have extended. Right. It's been a really – I always had the, the traditional macro 6 to 18-month time horizon, and I've completely moved to secular almost entirely now because, I don't know – something a i think you've got a tailwind it's easier i can be dumber i can just say it's going up you know it's it's simpler than trying to capture the ups and downs and i found that over time it's given me a lot more peace of mind and better returns the longer i've gone out the time horizon the less competition there is for noise and markets and everything else um and you know you you rarely have to make another decision you know I might need to make a decision now about bond yields. You know, have, have they changed secondly or not? But that's the first time I've had to test that hypothesis in my entire career, which has been, it's been easy, right? And so, yeah, that's what I've found. And that's led me to become an optimist because most of the actionable macro trends are actually optimistic trends. So the way I think about this is, again, this idea that my task is not to see the future, it's to see the present clearly, right? So from that perspective, I realized that if you and I were sitting here in 2018, I don't think we would have predicted anything about how the next five years unfolded. We would not have predicted the pandemic, we would not have predicted markets doing what they did through the pandemic. Um, like nothing about 2018 to 2023, like negative oil prices, um, like nothing that happened between 2018 and 2023 we would have predicted. Or had we been sitting in 2013, 10 years ago, there's nothing between 2013 and 2023 we would have predicted. So when it comes to like long-term forecasts, I really struggle because I have no idea what 2025 would uh, look at. It's uh, not long-term forecasting. You don't need to forecast if you have a trend. Right? You need to have one. I love, I'm really obsessed now with the bell curve meme, which is 
the Moron on the left, the Jedi on the right, that both say the same thing, and all of kind of humanity in the middle overcomplicating it. And I kind of think if you can get it down to a single pure expression of simplicity that you can explain to your uncle, then you're probably right. Yeah. And the moment you overcomplicate things, you're probably wrong. Um, so, and I found that for secular trends, it's like technology is the most obvious one at the moment. Or maybe India. These are just so blatantly obvious, you know, India, average age of 28, rapidly financializing everything else, you know, the probability of the Indian stock market excluding, you know, black swan events going up over time, knowing what we know about all past experiences of something like, it's pretty high. So it's like, okay, or technology, are we going to use more technology or less technology in 10 years time? Probability is pretty damn high, it'll be more. And the speed of it. So, you know, that's, I've, I've become super simplistic. I mean, totally more unlike in my simplicity. We, again, so the way I think about this is I rather focus on six to 18 month timeframes and stay as close to the present and the price action as possible and keep extending that. So that eventually does become the long term, yeah, but course. stay as close to the present because, you know, I would argue it seems obvious now to be long America and long tech, for example. Right. But. It wasn't so obvious a decade ago, because a decade ago, if you think about it, post-GFC, you know, 2010, you had top economists and investors writing letters to the Fed saying, stop QE, you're going to debase the currency and create hyperinflation. So there was no policy trust. In 2011, you had the fiscal crisis and the credit rating downgrade. So there was no political trust because there was political brinkmanship. In 2012, Facebook IBO flopped, you know, um, and that was a time when emerging markets were booming. China was looking good. Commodities were at all-time highs. Um, and it was the ease. I mean, America was the easiest bearish case. Um, and so I, I remind myself of that because oftentimes, you know, what's obvious turns out to be wrong over the next cycle. You oh, know? For sure. And I, I mean, although I use secular as my framework, no, as my thought process, I use the business cycle. You know, I'm, I'm a much more shorter term. I break it down into chunks mm. because it stops you drifting too far for when you're wrong because the business cycle should give you certain markers and you can test your hypothesis as you go. So I'm actually quite structured about how I do that. But I just prefer, I just much more enjoy how filtered down can I make any single thing. Um, I just find that, that an intellectually interesting process. And I completely agree with you on your simplicity point, right? Because that to me is everything. It's about simplifying my, simplifying my life as much as simplifying the writing. Like even when um, Thoreau wrote about, um, you know, to Emerson, he said that, you know, I've got this new idea of simplify, simplify, simplify. And Emerson said, you wrote simplify two extra times. Like, got it. Just simplify once is enough. So I'm a big believer in simplicity and in, in communicating your ideas. Um, yeah, that for me is a big one. And, and how you write too, right? And for me, the writing is a clarifying process because it kind of reveals what I don't know, what I need to know, where do I need to do more research. Um, but it starts with like really simplifying my life and the decision-making in my own life. And like that comes back to the routine, the daily routine that I sort of built for myself where I feel like that's also allows me to be reflective and and it's just different from, you know, most people out there. It's, again, it's a luxury that I get to have this routine.
And how do you teach yourself? Because I'm thinking how, for other people to learn from this is how do you teach yourself to absorb different views and not feel threatened by the views or, you know, we see this a lot. It's another problem people have is I'm very comfortable speaking to somebody with an entirely different view to me and sitting down and really understanding it because it's interesting to me. But a lot of people find it threatening. How do you deal with that? Because you're speaking to the to your community a lot. There's some very smart people, very accomplished people, and some of them will have wildly different views. How do you deal with it? I think it's more a process of becoming rather than tools or tips or techniques. Because I remember going to the first conference um, that I attended, you know, that Steve dropped me around um, in 2015. And I was completely starstruck with everybody there, right? And, and Steve trusted me to come in and give a talk. And I heard everybody's opinions. And I went back next year and I realized how many of them were wrong, who was right, who was making money the first year and who was losing money the next year. Like the, 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 seat, the seats kept changing, the fortunes kept changing. And so after going back to the event a number of times, which is most coveted and I think the best macro community event that I've ever been to and that currently even exists, you know, going there a bunch of times, I realized just the, the importance of humility and, you know, being able to say, I don't know. Because you'd see these people that were had very strong views, strong conviction, were had their portfolios positioned for such an outcome and it didn't work out. Um, funds shutting down. So you see all of that and you realize that actually no one knows anything. We're all just trying our best to figure it out. So that was, you know, one learning. I remember in the year two, in 2016 of that, of that conference, like Steve calls me up a couple of months before the event. And he was like, I want to do a bull versus bear debate. And I've got John Burbank as the bear, who in 2016 was on top of the world. And he's like, I can't find a bull, and I'm wondering if it's you, because you're the only one I know who's young enough and dumb enough to go up against it. Would you be interested? <laughs> I'm, I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do it. You know? And it just happened that I was very bullish at that time for very strong fundamental reasons. And going up against him in that debate, um, timing is perfect, right? This is February 2016. Your market's ripped right after that. And going up against him in that debate was nerve-wracking, but given the research that I'd done, I also felt more comfortable. And after that de debate, there was like a turning point for me. And that's why I say the process of becoming, because after the debate, um, the feedback from the community, the audience was fantastic and very encouraging. But I also realized at that point that my unconventional background, which I thought was a shortcoming, I realized in that moment, was actually a core strength because it helped me view the world differently from the vast majority of Western-born and trained analysts. And so it was really embracing that, so getting more confidence. And then just the feedback that I received from Steve Dropney and Adam Levinson and Scott Pessant and, and a number of others, you know, J.P. Stein and, and, um, and later many others that really sort of allowed me to be who I am. And so it's really growing in confidence that kind of allows you to one, also grow in humility, but also be able to speak your mind when you feel like you're seeing things clearly. I think I had a similar thing at one of the Drobny conferences before I started Global Macro Investor, maybe 2003. Same kind of thing. I was you know, kind of early in that room. And yes, I've been running a reasonably large hedge fund. I kind of, kind of knew what I was doing. Um, but there I was, the guy that we used to compete with on P&L 
was this guy called uh, Ravi Mera, who ran um, this big, it was based out of Spain. I can't remember what it was called now. Um, and he was like the big dog in the room at the time. You know, he was running a few billion dollars. And uh, I ended up having a, quite a big, not heated, but, you know, engaging debate with him. And again, same thing happened that I was dead right. And he was very much of the consensus view about, you know, it was inflation, I think it was. Um, and same thing, it, that that led to, you know, people like, oh, this guy's interesting. He's, you know, he he was prepared to take on the guy who was holding the whole room and then, you know, had a 20-minute in front of everybody debate about it all and it, and it kind of worked out. You know, what's interesting actually is a couple of months after the debate is when I first appeared on Real Vision. It was, I think, March or April of 2016. and. And it was Grant Williams visiting um, Dubai. We filmed a bunch of interviews at my house. And he interviewed me as well. And I shared my thinking, which is basically a distillation of what I had argued at that event a couple of months prior. It was just bullish case. And even then, if you remember, everybody was quite negative. And so that, that bullish uh, argument that I presented for Real Vision kind of resonated with a lot of people. And this is like what? Um, year three of the business. And you don't know this. No one, I've never shared this before, but if it wasn't for Real Vision in that interview, I probably would not have survived as a business. Because for me, really? yeah, because for me, 2016 revenue was $40,000, $45,000. I think at that point, the, the, the product was priced at like $700. And after that interview, we probably got like 50 subscribers, 50, 60 subscribers, maybe something of that sort. And so the timeliness of that interview, you know, and um, was, yeah, it was serendipitous. It's the universe conspiring in your favor. So I'm grateful to you and, and the platform for giving me life. Well, you also did an amazing series for us. If people go and dig into the search and look for cha uh, Travels with Jawad, you went around the world and kind of took stock of what the debates were going on in various parts of the world. Um, and it was fun. You filmed it on your iPhone, and, and then we had some cameras in various places. It was like reportage of Jawad on the road. I, I mean, it was just great. It was a real proud moment for me for, for Real Vision because we were doing something different, something that hadn't yeah. been done. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So I'm going to ask you a really difficult question now. Who are your macro heroes? Who, hmm. who do you think people should really pay attention to? Now, you know, we've all been exposed to a lot of them. Who are your real macro heroes? There used to be a time when, you know, if there was an interview from Shine Druckenmiller, I would drop everything to just watch that interview. I don't do that anymore. That's not because I don't respect him anymore. I, I love him and, 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 and what he's achieved. But I think, again, it's that process of becoming where you realize um, you don't need to have those heroes played a part in your journey because you needed that aspiration. You needed those mentors. You needed to be striving towards something, but, and you can honor them and you can respect them. Um, but I can marvel at their achievements and they're the same from the very beginning. You know, it's still Paul Tudor Jones and, and Chandra and Miller and, um, and you know, I, you know, Steve Cohen is definitely among them. I interviewed Steve, um, a couple of years ago and the most interesting thing that I found in that interview was how, you know, we can think that we're playing at our best level, 
No, we don't realize that there's another level that exists that we don't even know exists. It's like, you know, Nadal and, and Federer and um, Djokovic or Messi, like they're just, or Bryant even, like they're just, or LeBron, they're playing at a level that we don't even know exists. And that's kind of my takeaway from that interview of Steve Cohen, because he is literally playing at a level that I don't think we understand even exists. And so it's, so from that perspective, just getting to know him better than uh, anybody else amongst those sort of legends, I understand how um, it's the person. And it's not so much how they, their views about the market, but again, to the, you know, the point of this conversation, how they think about market, how they trade, what's going on inside their head, their heart. I keep rereading The Alchemy of Finance because it's a journal real time into how Soros is trading a series of events and how half the time his ideas are wrong and how he deals with it. Just his ability to be long and short against himself at the same time on different time horizons is something that is unfathomable for most people. But he could trade against himself while having a core position. And he's not hedging his bets. He's got divergent time horizon bets going at the same time. You know, I've, I, I find that amazing. I, I really like brains that think so differently that I can't understand how they can do it. You know, there's people, do you know Mark Hart? Yeah, yeah he must have Mark. Mark's another person. It's like, you know, every time you meet him, he's moved on another 15 years in how he thinks. And I sit down with him, my brain's blown again, and I have to go back and reconsider everything I know about whatever it is. There's a few people like that that I, I, I really enjoy, and they, they tend not to be dogmatic people. They tend to be just these people on a journey, and they approach their journey in a very unique way. Those, those are the people I really, really enjoy having a conversation with. The average macro person who talks about the market, I don't really care. I don't really care whether dollar yen goes up or you know whatever. But give me something to really get into. John Burbank, you know, from time to time has been amazing for that. You know, he's, he was on Real Vision a lot. Um, and he always makes you think, you know, in a way, as you said, it's like, uh, I wasn't even considering any of this stuff. And now suddenly I have to think about it. I'm more interested, I think, these days, less in um, how people think, but how they live their life, right? Like, so how do they actually approach their craft? I'm also different in that I'm not trading, I'm not writing a book. I'm just writing. You know, a few years into the business, I realized that actually I'm reading books on how to be a better writer, not how to be a better investor. And that was like an existential thing for me. <laughs> like, am I even qualified to provide investment advice? And I realized actually the, some of the world's greatest, you know, writers and had talents that were at odds with their experience. Like, you know, um, Norman Melville couldn't stand life aboard a ship, but he wrote Moby Dick. Ernest Hemingway was far away from the, action that you wrote, you know, some of the best wartime novels. Um, and so I just felt like, can I still do this? And I realized, yes, I can. And through the help of the community, but I find myself more interested, not so much in, again, you know, market views, but in terms of like, what's the routine, you know, how do they wake up in the morning? What do they do first? You know, um, how do they think about breathing, taking losses? Um, so we, so a lot of conversations that we have in the community are also related to process. And um, realizing that, you know, people that are 10 years younger to me, 10 years older to me, you know, life is difficult. You know, just being a father at the same time as being a trader or, or managing a relationship with your wife or, or husband, and it's tough. So I find myself, you know, increasingly getting more and more into those sorts of conversations because 
I realized I want to strive for excellence, not just at work, uh, not just in my spiritual life, but also, you know, I've got three kids, nine, six, and three. I want to strive for excellence as a father. I've been married 10 years, you know, um, I want to, I've got friends that are struggling or, um, finding it difficult in their relationships. I want to strive for excellence in, in, in that department. So how can I sort of do all of that the best of my ability? And so a lot of what I feel drawn to now is in this industry where everybody is overworked, uh, type A, um, how can I help myself first? Then perhaps others also get a better understanding of all these other areas of our life that need to be managed as well and not to overweight one over the other. Um, but yeah, the, the daily routine is something that I'm really into a lot of, you know, how do people go about their day? I think the world, this journey, and again, it's a life journey for me and it's holistic. There's a lot more to it. And I find that financial markets are just one expression of something broader. And now whether that's, as you say, the routines that you structure, how you live your life in certain ways. Um, I think a lot of people become as interested in that as they are in the finance. So whenever I talk about this stuff, people remember those articles a lot because it makes them think about their own, appraise their own lives, reflects on who they are and where they're going. Do you think that your community, Stray Reflections, will move broader because people have a need, maybe even bigger need than just the financial ideas, but the journey of life itself. I mean, like I, I referred to Anatole France who said, if the path be beautiful, let us not ask where it leads. So that's always been my approach where just follow the heart and take the next best step, you know? And then as Rumi would say, as you start to walk in the way, the way appears. So I can certainly feel this desire within me, uh, in all the other areas, how that manifests. I'm not exactly sure. I have an idea for a retreat. Um, next year that I'm going to be working on. That could be one thing. Um, but generally, you know, if I look at the community today, it's, you know, East West, it's pension funds, endowments, it's also hedge funds, or various strategies, it's family offices, it's VCs, um, all generally, it's, it's founders even, but it's generally within the world of finance. And I think currently I'm approaching it through my own self-examination. So I'll write this weekly note to self. Uh, you know, so it started off with like these personal reflections that you find in the Shri Reflections book. And now I find myself more interested in just like fixing myself. <laughs> so these notes to self, which is basically, I would say, you know, a cross on meditations and Sufi poetry and trying to like just, you know, pull myself to account. And how did that morph in the future? It's tough to say. But I certainly know that there's an invitation for more of these sorts of conversations within the community. And they're certainly appreciated, like you found as well. Chow, I've listened, been fabulous to talk to you. I just think it's it's just refreshing to hear somebody think so differently and so deeply and reflect about this whole journey and what it means and how to engage in it. So hopefully people have got a lot out of this as well, just because of the frantic pace of everything that goes wrong in the news flow to somewhat somehow sit back and reflect is actually a very good thing. And I would say just to descend from the mind uh, to the heart. I think that was also huge for me from the very beginning of my journey.
because it's an industry again where it's all about intellectual horsepower, right? And the brain and intelligence and really valuing that to really understanding that the heart has its own intelligence and how can we tap into that? Um, and so, yeah, you know, I think that that's, that's super important just to, you know, understand, not just, not just how you think, but how you feel and, and what, does that, feel. what does that lead to? Fantastic. Jawad, thank you so much. Really good to see you. Pleasure as always, Joe. Thank you. Jawad is an extraordinary person. As you can see, he's very different to anybody else in the macro space. Everybody else is monkeys throwing poo at each other, shouting for voices. And he's actually quiet. He's quiet and he listens and he reflects. And I think there's some real magic in that. He's built an incredible community of some of the world's most famous investors. We actually share many clients between Global Macro Investor and, and his service. They're very different. But people like him and I like him because he is so different. And he really makes you stop and think. And I think thinking is a true blessing. I hope you enjoyed it. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 